0: I'm David Preston, and you're listening to the Lit AF Podcast. Join us each week for a tour through the literary classics like you have never heard them before. Each season is a new book, and each episode is a new way of thinking about it. If you'd like more information about becoming a sponsor or a member of the Lit AF community, which will enable you to attend live streams with authors, get discounts on merchandise, participate in community forums, and even determine what I read next, come find us on the web at litafpodcast.com. Hey everyone, welcome and thanks for joining episode one of season one of the Lit AF podcast. In season one, we're reading The Great Gatsby, but before we get to the text, let's start with a little background about the book. For decades, The Great Gatsby has been a staple of high school English courses, And for most people, that is exactly the wrong time to read it. You can tell by the audience response. A quick online search turns up about 17,000 websites that all call the book boring and overrated, which on one hand makes total sense, but it's also not just about the book. You know, a sharp piece of metal can be a scalpel or a shiv, depending on who's holding it and what they intend to do with it. In the hands of most high school teachers and students, The Great Gatsby is a means to an end. It's an essay waiting to happen or a multiple-choice test about the symbolism of the green light at the end of Daisy's dock or Dr. T.J. Eckleburg's spectacles. That was how I learned the book in high school, and when I taught, that was how I was expected to teach it. Um, but one semester, I was reading Gatsby with an American Lit class and I learned that my first wife was having an affair with a billionaire. Now, I like reading books more than once because our experiences lead us to different interpretations over time. And even though I couldn't mention the disintegration of my marriage to my students, I started reading the Daisy character as a real and deeply flawed human being. The choices she makes. The way she talks to her daughter. Fitzgerald wrote, quote, They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together and let other people clean up the mess they had made. Well, at that point, I dropped the lesson plans and got curious. Instead of asking students to just analyze indirect characterization, I started conversations and I asked them what they really thought of Daisy. I was genuinely surprised by the intensity of their reaction. They hated her. One of my gentlest, quietest, and most unassuming students said that she wanted to hit Daisy hard enough so that Daisy would forget who she had been and become someone better. What my students knew and what I eventually learned is that it takes an experience of pain to really understand The Great Gatsby. Besides F. Scott Fitzgerald, the two men who knew the book best were two of the most badass writers of the 20th century, and they also both blew their own heads off. Both Hunter S. Thompson and Ernest Hemingway were intimately familiar with pain. Both Thompson and Hemingway also recognized that Fitzgerald's love story, yes, had roots in Fitzgerald's life, but also had roots in all of us in the desire that fuels every one of our efforts to get the thrill of someone else's affection, and when we don't, to dull the pain of rejection. In real life, F. Scott Fitzgerald's own wife, Zelda, was such, uh, you know, in these trying times, it's so important to choose our language carefully, so I'm going to say this with a great deal of intention. I'll start that sentence again. F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife Zelda was such a psycho that Hemingway actually had to examine Scott's dick in a restaurant just to reassure him. More about that in a minute. First, let's talk about Hunter S. Thompson. When I was in high school in college and as an adult, I always admired Hunter S. Thompson. He was like a one-of-a-kind nightmare unicorn who somehow ate all sorts of experiences, bad trips, beatings Richard Nixon's political campaign and he turned it all into this like mosh pit of poetry Thompson turned the novel inside out he filtered real-life events real-life people all of that non-fiction through the eyes and intestines of a journalist who was so high and so deeply involved with the story that the narrator became a larger-than-life character and the whole thing got way stranger than fiction would have been in the first place. To use his own words, Thompson bought the ticket and took the ride. He was an outsider on the inside, describing the depraved Native tribes people, even as he stood among them on the infield at the Kentucky Derby Churchill Downs. Thompson's book about riding with the Hells Angels actually inspired me to take my own trip in Embedded Anthropology. I was thinking about that when I took my first high school teaching job. I had been researching education policy and consulting for executives, and it was Hunter S. Thompson who made me want to learn about modern high school from inside the barbed wire fence. After reading his books, I figured the best way to understand and tell the story was to join the tribe. Now, around the time that Hunter S. Thompson was writing, there was actually a movement to put the author in the story. Norman Mailer wrote about it this way, quote, I had some dim intuitive feeling that what was wrong with all journalism is that the reporter tended to be objective and that was one of the great lies of all time. Other writers adopted similar tactics. Joan Didion, Tom Wolfe, Truman Capote and Gay Talese, just to name a few. They all became associated with a style that was becoming known as new journalism. And in a way, writers inserting themselves as tour guides and translators in itself was a logical extension of the classic first-person narrator. But instead of just call me Ishmael, now it was more like, call me Ishmael and take my hand and grab onto something sturdy because this shit's about to get weird. But even in that class of people, Hunter S. Thompson just somehow stood alone. His voice was so unique that he created a whole subgenre, gonzo journalism. And when he stopped writing, it was like the door slammed so hard behind him that anyone who tries to write in that style seems like just a pathetic poser. And I say all of this because it was the moment that I realized I didn't really get Gatsby. The moment that I didn't get Gatsby, the moment that I felt like there was something to see that I hadn't previously seen, was when I learned that Hunter S. Thompson retyped the entire novel of The Great Gatsby word for word because in his words, he wanted to know what it felt like to write a masterpiece. A masterpiece? I didn't get it, but I kind of got the process. I'm a big fan of um, Kirby Ferguson's online video called Everything's a Remix. And that's, I think, where I first learned about the Thompson-Gatsby connection. But Kirby Ferguson makes the point that, you know, we think of geniuses as these one-off, super individualized, like touched by the hand of God people that get some sort of divine inspiration, and that's just not how it works. The geniuses that you can think of as originals all started off by learning someone else's game. You know, there was only one George Carlin. No stand up comedian could be confused with George Carlin. But in the beginning, if you see old black and white clips of George Carlin wearing a suit and tie, you realize that he started by doing impressions. Not of famous people, he did his impression of what he thought a stand up comedian should look and sound like. Bob Dylan, right? No, <laughs> David Bowie called his voice, it was like sand and glue. You couldn't mint another Bob Dylan if you tried. And yet, for all of his originality, his instrumentation, his lyricism, the first Bob Dylan album was mostly covers of Woody Guthrie songs. And then my favorite example of this was George Lucas. He made Star Wars an amazingly original movie, but he did it by patching together shots, sequences, visual effects, and sound effects from a hundred different movies, and he put them all into this paint-by-numbers formula that came right out of a Joseph Campbell Hero's Journey monomyth textbook. And I guess in saying these things, I'm remixing a remix. But Thompson did more than just imitate F. Scott Fitzgerald to see what it was like to type a brilliant book or to even create the muscle memories of his keys on the typewriter. Sorry, his fingers on the keys of the typewriter. Thompson also learned Fitzgerald's style and he incorporated technique into his own writing. He described the approach in a letter to a drinking buddy this way, quote, I'm using the narrator participant technique a la Gatsby. Thompson may have been near Barstow when the drugs kicked in, but if there weren't a great Gatsby, there would never have been a fear and loathing in Las Vegas. So, Hunter S. Thompson was one of the badass writers to admire Gatsby. But he wasn't even the only one who shot himself in the head who thought F. Scott Fitzgerald's book was a masterpiece. In 1964, Ernest Hemingway wrote a memoir entitled A Moveable Feast. And he wrote about Fitzgerald this way, quote, If he could write a book as fine as The Great Gatsby, I was sure that he could write an even better one. But then in the very next sentence, Hemingway also wrote, quote, I did not know Zelda yet, and so I did not know the terrible odds that were against him. But we were to find them out soon enough. Hemingway goes on to describe the alcohol-drenched meals and arguments through which he learned just how deeply Zelda mind-fucked her husband. Hemingway again, quote, Much later, In the time after Zelda had what was then called her first nervous breakdown, and we happened to be in Paris at the same time, Scott asked me to have lunch with him at Michaud's restaurant on the corner of the Rue Jacob and the Rue de Saint-Prez. He said he had something very important to ask me that meant more than anything in the world to him and that I must answer absolutely truly. I said that I would do the best that I could. When he would ask me to tell him something absolutely truly, which is very difficult to do, and I would try it, what I said would make him angry. Often not when I said it, but afterwards, and sometimes long afterwards when he had brooded on it. My words would become something that would have to be destroyed, and sometimes, if possible, me with them. He drank wine at the lunch, but it did not affect him, and he had not prepared for the lunch by drinking before it. We talked about our work and about people, and he asked me about people that we had not seen lately. I knew that he was writing something good and that he was having great trouble with it for many reasons, but that was not what he wanted to talk about. I kept waiting for it to come, the thing that I had to tell the absolute truth about, but he would not bring it up until the end of the meal, as though we were having a business lunch. Finally, when we were eating the cherry tart and had a last carafe of wine, he said, You know, I never slept with anyone except Zelda. No, I didn't. I thought I had told you. No, you told me a lot of things, but not that. That is what I have to ask you about. Good, go on. Zelda said that the way I was built, I could never make any woman happy, and that was what upset her originally. She said it was a matter of measurements. I have never felt the same since she said that, and I have to know truly. Come out to the office, I said. Where is the office? Le water, I said. We came back into the room and sat down at the table. You're perfectly fine, I said. You are okay. There is nothing wrong with you. You look at yourself from above and you look foreshortened. Go over to the Louvre and look at the people in the statues and then go home and look at yourself in the mirror in profile. Those statues may not be accurate. They are pretty good. Most people would settle for them. But why would she say it? to put you out of business. That's the oldest way in the world of putting people out of business. Scott, you asked me to tell you the truth, and I can tell you a lot more, but this is the absolute truth and all you need. You could have gone to see a doctor. I didn't want to. I wanted you to tell me truly. Now, do you believe me? I don't know, he said. After all of that, after going through... Whatever it took to get the nerve up to ask Ernest Hemingway about the size and shape of his member, F. Scott Fitzgerald got up from the table, accompanied Ernest Hemingway to the men's room where he dropped trow, showed Papa his dick, got the reassurance of a good friend and a man's man by all accounts, who am I to judge? And still, Zelda had wormed her way into F. Scott Fitzgerald's confidence so deeply that he couldn't quite bring himself to believe that he actually wasn't somehow less of a man. And I don't really know, I can't pretend to know, but the amount of pain that F. Scott Fitzgerald must have been in, didn't just stop at his inability to believe in himself. It even led him to defend Zelda to Hemingway. Hemingway goes on to write, Forget what Zelda said, I told him. Zelda is crazy. There's nothing wrong with you. Just have confidence and do what the girl wants. Zelda just wants to destroy you. And F. Scott Fitzgerald comes back and says, You don't know anything about Zelda. But it turns out that Ernest Hemingway did. Here is how he described F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife. Zelda had hawk's eyes and a thin mouth and deep south manners and accent. And here I'm going to pause because this is the hook. Deep south manners and accent. Well, it turns out in The Great Gatsby, Daisy is also from the deep south. And it turns out further that like The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald had served in the military. And like The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald felt that he needed to woo his wife to court her to make an impression, to be something more than he himself felt that he was in order to gain her affection. There are more parallels here we will come to in the text, but for the moment, back to Hemingsway's description. Watching her face, you could see her mind leave the table and go to the night's party and return with her eyes blank as a cat's and then pleased and the pleasure would show along the thin line of her lips and then be gone. Scott was being the good cheerful host and Zelda looked at him and she smiled happily with her eyes and her mouth, too, as he drank the wine. I learned to know that smile very well. It meant she knew Scott would not be able to write. Zelda was jealous of Scott's work and as we got to know them, this fell into a regular pattern. Scott would resolve not to go on an all-night drinking party and to get some exercise each day and work regularly. He would start to work And as soon as he was working well, Zelda would begin complaining about how bored she was and get him off on another drunken party. They would quarrel and then make up, and he would sweat out the alcohol on long walks with me and make up his mind that this time he would really work and would start off well. Then it would start all over again. Scott was very much in love with Zelda and he was very jealous of her. He told me many times on our walks of how she had fallen in love with the French Navy pilot. But she had never made him really jealous with another man since. This spring, she was making him jealous with other women. And on the Montmartre parties, he was afraid to pass out, and he was afraid to have her pass out. At this time, Zelda could drink more than Scott could, and Scott was afraid for her to pass out in the company they kept that spring and the places they went to. Scott did not like the places, nor the people and he had to drink more than he could drink and be in any control of himself just to stand the people in the places. And then he began to have to drink, to keep awake, after he would usually have passed out. Finally, he had few intervals of work at all. He was always trying to work. Each day he would try and fail. Now, keep all that in mind while I read the epigraph and the dedication to The Great Gatsby. When I was a student, I usually skipped over that stuff and I went straight to page one. But one time I was rereading Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 and something about the epigraph just nailed me. Ray Bradbury used a line from Juan Ramon Jimenez. And at first I didn't know that name. I later learned that Juan Ramon Jimenez was a Spanish poet who had won the Nobel Prize. And here's the line. Quote, if they give you ruled paper, write the other way, end quote. What got me was the fact that I always called notebook paper lined paper. But the use of the word ruled made me immediately think of forceful government and being made to do things against our will. After that, I never looked at an epigraph the same way again, because I realized that an author must consider every single one of those precious few syllables if they're going to trust it to set the tone for the book they've worked so hard to write. So here, then, is what F. Scott Fitzgerald chose as the epigraph for The Great Gatsby. Quote, Then wear the gold hat, if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too. Till she cry, lover, gold-hatted, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. End quote. As I learned more about The Great Gatsby and eventually F. Scott Fitzgerald, I realized how twistedly perfect this epigraph really was. And I wondered, where in the hell did Fitzgerald find this quote? Now, I had never seen the author's name, so I looked it up. This time, I wasn't rewarded with a Spanish Nobel Prize winning poet, but I understood a lot more when I discovered the source the epigraph is attributed to a man named thomas park de and there is no such guy thomas park de turns out to be the pen name of none other than f scott fitzgerald and the name of a character in this side of paradise which was f scott fitzgerald's semi-autobiographical first novel man course you couldn't find a quote that perfect anywhere outside your own, I don't even know what the adjective is at that point, but your own self, if you're F. Scott Fitzgerald. And as for the dedication, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote once again to Zelda, ah, the things we do for love. Join us next time on Lit AF for chapter one of The Great Gatsby. In the meantime, If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or joining the Lit AF community, please head on over to our website at litafpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.